everyone. Welcome back to the Liberal Arts Endeavor, a podcast by Michigan State University's College of Arts and Letters. As you may already know, I'm Hannah, one of your co-hosts and an intern at at the college. Today, I'm back with my co-host, Dean Chris Long. Hey, everyone. Hey, Hannah. Hey. Um, So... Let's talk about this um, lake that we're currently living in. <laughs> yeah, getting here was a bit of a challenge, crossing yeah. the Red Cedar River, which has... Revolted. It revolted, exactly. <laughs> it, it's beyond its own banks, for sure. Yes. Um, we saw the fields over by Kresge. Yeah. Um, flooded. Floods everywhere. Yeah, yesterday I walked over to the Kellogg Center, and the baseball and softball fields oh, right. completely underwater. The bridge over to the Kellogg Center was closed, and so we had to do the oh. do another bridge. And that one was was probably a foot above the, the rushing water. So it's just crazy. Crazy. Hopefully it'll end some sometime soon. It'll yeah, get I think it's supposed to, to crest in the next few hours or something. Cool. Um, so we might not be able to get back to Linton <laughs> Hall. <laughs> we'll, we'll canoe back. Okay. Um, And good news, happy news, this is our 20th episode of the Liberal Arts Endeavor. How cool is that? Excellent, and what a good topic we have today. Yeah, today we are talking about the newly opened Digital Scholarship Lab, DSL for short. We love our acronyms here at MSU. Um, The DSL is located on the second floor on the west side of the MSU libraries. Today we have the distinct pleasure to be talking with Terry Miller, Assistant Director for Public Services for the MSU Library, and John Frey, Associate Professor of Classical Studies, Art History, and Visual Culture in both that Department of Art, Art History and Design, as well as the Department of Romance and Classical Studies in the College of Arts and Letters. What a mouthful. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Welcome, Terry and John. Thank you. We're so excited to have you here. Um, Can you you just want to introduce yourself a little bit more than I just did (laughs) and talk about what you do here at MSU? Sure. Um, I'm Terry Miller. I'm the Assistant Director for Public Services at the libraries, and uh, my job is um, there's a lot of stuff with public services at the library, and that's everything from spaces in the building to um, how to keep it open when it's flooding <laughs> and making sure the ducks don't come into the building. <laughs> and um, just all of our services that we do are, are, are part of my purview. And so opening new services like the lab is one of the best things I get Yay. to do. One thing that Terry has also is the chair of the search committee for the university librarian. Oh. And I'm on the search committee. Too. <laughs> yes, yes. So that, yeah, so we'll have a new university librarian in a few months, and uh, that'll be exciting, too. Cool. Oh, it's my turn. All right. <laughs> uh, yeah, so um, I'm in uh, the Department of Art, Art, History, and Design and the Department of Romance and Classical Studies, and they kind of put me in between two departments because I'm a classical archaeologist. And uh, classical archaeologists haven't ever really kind of fit well into the American university system. We don't necessarily have our own departments. We don't fit well with uh, anthropology or with other places. So they put us in these neat places where we kind of bridge different departments. So I work on things like uh, Greece and Rome. I dig in the summers in Greece. uh, I take students with me. uh, And then uh, during the school year, I teach classes in uh, art, art history, archaeology, things like that. Awesome. So let's let's go back. Let's talk about the Digital Scholarship Lab. Um, we it opened two weeks ago. Yeah, we were there for the ago. opening ceremony. It was very cool. We got to see all the different things that happen. Um, but can you talk to us about what's in the space and uh, what what exactly is the D- the DSL? 
So the lab is um, a, a place for teaching and learning about digital scholarship in all of its forms and, and in many different departments and across curriculums and colleges. So, um, And it's also a space where our people who are working in those technologies and thinking about those technologies can come together and grow ideas and work with each other. So uh, two really important things. So, you know, a sandbox of toys for people to work with and then a place for people to come together and collaborate. And that's uh, two really important things. So the three main parts Parts of the lab are um, we have the virtual reality lab, which has got an Oculus Rift and an HTC Vive uh, for people to work in virtual reality with the headsets. Um, and then we have our beautiful 360 degree ver- uh, vis- visualization room um, for shared visualization. And then in the middle of that, we have a workshop space um, that allows people to uh, create content to be used both in those spaces and in um, other fields as well. Nice. Very cool. Very cool. We were there and we got to see people using the um, the like Oculus Rifts and oh, it was so cool. You just people look crazy doing it. But what they're seeing is probably so cool. It's great that they have the glass there that you can watch people <laughs> yeah. living in these virtual or experiencing these virtual realities. Yeah. It's a little surreal. Yeah, yeah. And, and you see students who are used to walking down that hallway and seeing book stacks and then all of a sudden they stop dead in their tracks and they <laughs> see people doing virtual reality and they're how do I get in there? How do I do this? And and that's fantastic. So, Yeah, so this, I mean, I remember hearing at the opening ceremony that this has only been in the works for a year. It opened in a year, right? Mm. Yes, but the idea is, has gone back probably, you know, 10 years. We've okay. been talking about doing this. And, and there are a lot of digital scholarship labs and libraries all over the country Um but what we lacked was space. And so in the last couple of years, we've taken on this big project to move books uh, to our remote storage facility so that we can have space to do really innovative things. And so it's taken us about two years to get enough space um, so that we could do something really transformative on the second floor. Awesome. Yeah, the space is such an amazing place. It's over the Beale Botanical Gardens. Mm-hmm. It's right there in the center of campus. And from my perspective, the opportunity to partner with the libraries, which is, as I've said before, the beating heart of the university. It's a place where everyone gathers and everyone is empowered to gather and um, to do the work that we need to do together. So to be able to collaborate with the library in a in a substantive way around the uh, strengths that we're trying to develop in the College of Arts and Letters and also more broadly at MSU in digital humanities research and scholarship and to do that in a, in a central place and to kind of model what it might look like for a, a, a space that is active with graduate students and faculty and undergraduate students and library staff and academic specialists all working in visiting scholars. So the vision is um, really compelling and that's why uh, the work that we've done together I think with the libraries has been such an um, important part of establishing and elevating our reputation in these areas. Absolutely. I, it's It's been, um, you know, for, for librarians, uh, for GEARS, we just haven't had any space to do things. And so we would meet with faculty, but it was always kind of, okay, let's find a corner of the cafe or the <laughs> Wells Hall. And so uh, so making connections and, and really creating that atmosphere where people are, you know, coming together and make, having these collisions, which explode into such yeah. fantastic collaborations. Uh, it, it's, it's incredibly important. Why was it important to have the space at the library? Was it always kind of hope, hopeful to be there or was it just, 
I think there's something really important about it being at the library. So was that always the plan or? It was certainly always our plan. (laughs) Uh, And there's a few things there. I mean, some of it in the early days of digital scholarship, a lot of it is text-based and and text mining and digitizing, um, you know, rare books and things like that. And we've been doing that for a long time, um, but it sort of takes it to another level. So we have digital collections, but now people want to do text mining and faculty want to really explore things in a lot more depth. So the beginning was sort of talking about, well, how can we, uh, we have our collections, how can we sort of have these collisions with technology in our collections all in one spot? And then more and more, you know, our library liaisons who we've got 40 some that are all over campus are like, you know, I'm talking to somebody in social work and they're doing this cool thing, but they should be connected to this person who's in arts and letters because they're doing this cool thing. And so we would see some of this stuff and try to facilitate it. But on a big, huge campus like this, it's really difficult. So we did feel like we needed to have the space not just to bring our collections into the technology, but to bring people into the building yeah. itself. Yeah, and that, that was so important from my perspective as we were thinking about this in the early stages was to have a, a space where, where all the students and faculty from all the colleges feel like it can be their home Mm -hmm. and they're welcome there. And so one of the challenges we've had around uh, digital humanities, and John has experienced some of this, I think, is that we have strengths, but they're also spread out across programs, across colleges. And so we needed a central place that um, would be a home to to all of that and where people would be able to come and feel at home. So... um, we we have that in this space. It's such a neat, um, f- physically really interesting because it is above the Beale Botanical Garden, some of the oldest space on campus. Mm-hmm. And so we have the, some of the newest technologies and the most leading edge um, experiences for students and faculty right there with the oldest um, uh, spaces for research on campus. And, that, and that's a really important side of this. And the, the libraries has... Um, the library has been known to be a safe space on campus. It's mm-hmm. a place that students, when they're surveyed, say, you know, this is a place we feel safe and mm-hmm. we feel like we can do our best work. So having this kind of leading edge work being done in this space is so important. Yeah, it's really, I think it is gives the library also, sheds like a new light on a library for students, especially students that are undergraduate or maybe freshmen that come and see this VR, like, just see all these really cool, like, softwares that they can use whenever they want. It's really awesome, and I think something that not all students realize. So I think we're doing a good job of also marketing out there for everyone. Um, but it's also the first of its kind, right? It is. That's that's one of the most exciting <laughs> things about it. So the, the past... Um, Oh, four years that I've been in this position, I've gone to labs all over the country, even I've been out of the country and looked at digital scholarship labs. And um, um, and we wanted to do some of the things that were done elsewhere. We, we learned a lot of lessons from those spaces. But um, one of the things that we learned about was the 360-degree visualization rooms that are out there. Um, they weren't really... Uh, transformative, we'll, we'll call it that, mm-hmm. and and um, and we wanted a transformative space. So, uh, what makes this the first of its kind is the 360 visualization room. The company that we uh, got it from is out of the UK, um, and we asked them to do. Uh, we wanted a room that was really meant for teaching, and they hadn't used it that way before. They'd used mm-hmm. it a lot for corporate. There was some teaching interest, but what we said is we want instructors to be able to go up and point things out on the screen, and there would be no 
know, shadows. And, and, and we talked a lot about the breadth and the depth of what we wanted to do. And um, they were thrilled to work with a land-grant institution. They said our first U.S. university should be a land-grant because we're excited to see all of the different things you can come up with in this space. So um, the equipment in there uh, did not exist a year ago. Um, so we mm. are being, we are the experiment. So, uh, so they, we push the envelope with them by asking them to do some things and, um, they're pushing the envelope with us and saying, you know, here you go, uh, show us what you can do at MSU. So that's exciting. That's very cool. Um, so who can use the DSL? Anyone? Yeah, any uh, MSU faculty, staff, students, we are starting to get um, community members who are interested. Um, you know, the, the space isn't such that we can just sort of, especially the 360 room, There's, it's a somewhat complicated software. So um, so we can display a lot of things in there. And so, uh, but the, the intention is, is mostly faculty, staff, and students will be using it. But, um, you know, we're open. Yeah. That library is open a lot of hours. The lab is open till well, after spring break, it'll be open till 11 o'clock at night. So. Well, People will be able to come in and and use the space, use the lab and um, the VR equipment, and even go in and do visualization work after hours, we hope. Yeah, one of the challenges we have, uh, every university has, is, you know, attracting and retaining the best talent that you can among the faculty and students. And so having a world-class space with world-class um, equipment is uh, critical to that. And I, I've been thinking a lot about this, especially in the 360 room. I've been in there. I've seen John. I've seen your your video, your 360 video that you've taken uh, of your students there in, in, in Greece and kind of feel like you're transported to Greece, you know, mm-hmm. right there in the middle of East Lansing, in the middle of campus. So so talk a little bit about how you're, you're envisioning using some of this uh, equipment for teaching and also for research. Yeah, for, for me, I'd say um, it's kind of, I mean, ever since I've, I've started working at, at MSU, I've kind of seen the, the research and teaching thing not so much as a, as a divided effort, but uh, I've, I've spent a lot of time involving students in my research. Um, and so, uh, you know, to have a space like the DSL is, is just great because it brings together a huge number of tools that archaeologists use. Um, archaeologists have kind of always been early adopters of technology, you know, when going from drawings to photographs to digital imagery to laser scanners, GIS, GPS, all those kind of things. And it's just exciting to have all of those resources in one place. Um, and it's exciting also, like Terry's talking about, to have a community of people who are interested in not just in, in learning how to use these tools, but to investigate what does it mean to use these tools. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of conversation right now in, in my field, uh, uh, a lot of sort of meta conversation about, okay, it's great, we can build 3D models, uh, but what does that mean? I mean, how does that, how does that change one's interaction with the real thing that you've modeled? Is it better, worse, different? How does creating a virtual museum affect attendance at a real museum? How does seeing an archaeological space on a VR headset, you know, how is that different? And how does that change our interpretation of the past? How does it enable interpretations of the past? You know, a, a lot of times, you know, an archaeologist who spend a lot of time working in the field, thinking about things, looking at sort of the, 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 the ruined remains of a building can picture those things in his or her head. And it's really difficult to kind of communicate those things to others. But having a, a 360 visualization room or having a VR headset on, or just having the tools that are available now in the DSL to digitally reconstruct artifacts, monuments, things like that, sort of improves uh, our ability to communicate with our students, our ability to communicate with the public and with with other archaeologists. Um, 
I recently taught a class where we spent a lot of time thinking about um, not just about ancient art, but about the ways in which ancient art are delivered to the student uh, in, in the classroom and to encourage students to be really critical of the way in which we just accept photographs and slides and 3D models as, as you know, accurate facsimiles of the, of the actual thing. Uh, and so it's exciting to have a place like the DSL with lots of computers and an immersive visualization room. You can take students there and you can say, okay, look, here, here is the actual artifact that comes from the Broad Museum or comes from the anthropology collection or something like that. Let's, let's take photographs of it, let's model it, let's build a model, let's place it in virtual space and let's talk about the way in which your interactivity with the digital version and the real thing you know, how does that change the way you think about, you know, the past or think about the sort of social context and the historical context of that, of that artifact? So it's just exciting to have all these resources and all of these people kind of being able to come together in one place, you know, students, faculty, the public. Uh, so I'm, I'm excited about that. So as you think about, I mean, I know you've done a lot of study abroad um, trips with, with students and, and, and involve them in the research that you've been doing in Greece at, on site. So how is that, how will that, I mean, how will that change now as you go this summer with them and knowing that we have this equipment and, and, and the ability to bring some of that in, yes, I think you're right, a different form. And having them actually have the ability to do that kind of comparison, particularly the ones who are with you physically there. So how, how are you thinking about that? Yeah, I mean, for, for a long time now, I think I've been doing this study abroad for about 10 years now. And one of the things about that is, is that, you know, I would teach over in the summer in Greece and we would go to sites and museums and, and I would be able to actually like pick up artifacts and hand them to students and we can talk about things like that. But then I would come back in the fall and I'd sit in front of a lecture class and try to recreate that same experience for the students. And it's... It's not just a matter of it being easier to teach in Greece than it is to teach here. It's just that certain things, it, it's, it's difficult to get across the idea of, of being physically present in a certain space. You know, where in Greece I can point everybody in one direction, then tell them to turn around and look at the opposite direction, and they can see how the seacoast relates to this temple, or how this building relates to that building, or visual connections, spatial connections. Um, or even, you know, to, to be in a museum and say, okay, okay, let's look at this statue and then walk him into the next room and say, now you can now remember that, you know, and, and let's look at this statue. And they can walk all around it and they can see it from all directions and they can kind of talk about it in that way. And then, and in some ways, you know, when you get back into the classroom here, uh, even, you know, even with the, with the sort of most accurate and most sort of detailed high resolution pictures you can, it takes five, six, seven photographs to tell that same story. The other interesting thing about it is that, that I noticed in the study abroad, students weren't studying. Uh, and, and one year I asked them about that. I said, you, you guys never study, and yet you're, you're doing fine on the exams. And they told me, they said, well, back at state, you know, you sit there and you go through your notes and you study it because it's, because it's something abstract. It's something, you know, that you, that you're, it's information. Whereas uh, in the study abroad, it, it's an actual lived experience. So it's the difference of, you know, well, what is the date of this thing versus what did we do last night before dinner? Mm -hmm. and, and it's so much easier for them to retain that information. So for probably as long as, as Terry and the library have been thinking about building this space, I've been trying to think about a way to kind of bridge uh, the experience of students in Greece and the experience of students in Lansing. And, and so in some ways, you know, What's nice about the DSL is that there are only so many students I can take to Greece in the summer, but now I can bring, bring Greece, bring Italy, bring the Mediterranean to students here. We can stand in the, in the 360 space and I can still talk about those physical relationships. 
I can point the students to the left. I can tell them to turn around and look at, you know, this is exactly how this museum's laid out. This is exactly how this site looks. Um, or we can, or we can all get on the computers together and we can look at virtual models of things and we can talk about things. And so I'm trying to make it more of a, of a embodied lived experience, mm -hmm. even here in, at, at state. You know. Yeah. Well, I mean, one, one of the things that's interesting about that too, is that you, you, there are affordances to that. Namely, you can do those things now with students here who weren't able to be with you in Greece. But you, you can also take a, a critical look at what are the limitations of those digital uh, representations and, and, and what you lose by having this digitally mediated experience as well. So this is all part of the, you know, part of the, the process with a, a, with a digital scholarship lab is to both is to learn about the technology by using it to see what it's doing with us as well as what we can do with it and, and what it's doing to us. Absolutely. I mean, there's a, there's, a, there's a fairly active ongoing conversation in the material cultural community, right, among museum uh, curators, museum specialists, and among archaeologists. There was a sort of initial phase where, where the ability to build digital models started to become more accessible to the average user. And a lot of people that were sort of the, uh, uh, the people who kind of control access to sites and museums and control access to archaeological artifacts started to get really nervous about that. They said, oh, well, look, if you keep building these virtual models, no one's going to want to come see the actual thing. Mm -hmm. You know, membership in museums is going to go down. People aren't going to you know, want to engage in travel and that kind of stuff. And what's happened over about the last five, ten years is that actually it's demonstrated the exact opposite happens. That when you see these things and you get that much closer to it, it actually makes you want to go see mm -hmm. the real thing. Mm. Um, and there's been a certain amount of work uh, that, that's gone into uh, the experience of somebody who has seen something virtually and then seen it in real life. And one of the interesting outcomes of that is that when you're taken to Rome and stood in the middle of the forum, there's a bit of a sort of shocking kind of wow factor. Like, you, can, you know, you have to get your mind around the idea that, that you're actually physically there. Mm. Uh, but one of the exciting things about about seeing something virtually first before I take a student there is is that that kind of wow factor is in some ways reduced, and then we can actually just get down to learning. Mm -hmm. And so there isn't this way of distraction of like, oh, I didn't realize that that was over there, and this is over there, and my gosh, I didn't know it was that big. In some ways, those things are already known, mm -hmm. and so we can kind of move past that initial phase of like, you know, wow, I, I didn't realize this, you know, and then we can get down to like, what does it actually mean? What are the, what's the significance of all these spaces and these things? Yeah, that's great. I mean, what, one of the things I've pl played around with both in the, well, this is also in the VR space too with the Google Earth and being able to drive, being able to just be anywhere on the planet in a matter of seconds and then, you know, thinking about how powerful that would be if I were again going to go study abroad as I did when I was a junior, went to Vienna. If I could, if I could sit, if I could be, if I could use some of this VR equipment to transport myself to that apartment building where I knew I was going to be staying and could actually walk around the space a little bit to get some of my bearings when, so that when I got there, I wasn't completely disoriented. Yeah. You could actually kind of help that transition, a similar kind of thing to what yeah. you're saying. Yeah. 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 Um, I mean, how... I don't even know where to go from here now. <laughs> um, but what, I guess, what? let's talk about what your future plans are with the lab. I mean, are you going to do things differently now that you have this lab? Absolutely. Yeah. I'm, I'm really excited about starting. I'm, I, I happen to be on research leave this term, but I'm very excited about in the fall being able to teach in that space. I know a couple of art historians have already booked the, booked the lab and booked the space mm -hmm. uh, uh, so they can have 360 videos, so they can have these sort of immersive experiences with their classes. Um, yeah, so, so teaching-wise, I'm, I'm really excited about it. I'm already using the DSL. 
there's just so much, uh, you know, so as, as the technology improves and as archaeologists are constantly sort of finding the next new thing to be able to sort of explore the past, uh, in some ways it's difficult as an individual scholar to keep up with that. Mm-hmm. Software is really expensive. Processing power is really expensive. And so it's exciting to be able to go into, just walk into this space and it's all there waiting for me to use. So, so I'm already over there quite a, quite a bit. Um, one of the things that uh, we initially were working, a, a number of art historians were working with the uh, planetarium mm. about sort of recreating inside spaces. And so what's nice is that uh, now we have the planetarium and we have this igloo space that, that sort of produced two different kinds of experiences. Mm. Uh, the one does very well with ceilings. The other one does very well with a sort of uh, a, a more kind of head to toe kind of mm. lived experience in, in occupying a space. Um, but one of the things that we noticed in working with the planetarium is that um, that immersive content, this is going to sound a little bit odd, but but immersive content is not terribly um, uh, accessible right now uh, to the public and to scholars and things like that. I mean, you could say, oh, oh, wait, but Google Earth is, you know, they, they've mapped they've mapped the face of the Earth, and and that's true. But the problem is that that works very well on your laptop, and that works very well on a computer screen. But when you try to project that inside a space where we can actually have a shared lived experience, uh, it doesn't do as well. Um, so what we learned is, is when we tried to use Google Earth in the planetarium dome, the projections were all off, things mm-hmm. weren't right. Uh, and so there are certain ways in which certain content works for different venues. Uh, and so one of the projects I'm really excited about, uh, so we're already working with people in the DSL, we're working with people at uh, Study Abroad and uh, uh, over at the College of Arts and Letters, is to actually send students out this summer with 360 cameras mm-hmm. and to ask them to photograph in high resolution for us places that would be useful for teaching. Um, we only met once so far just to discuss this, but that was already an incredibly fruitful meeting uh, just as we sort of sitting there thinking about how we would use this space. Certain contributors said, well, it's not just about showing, you know, artistically and, and archaeologically significant spaces. What about setting up a 360 camera in the middle of town somewhere in Spain? and recording 20 minutes of just conversational Spanish. Mm-hmm. And we play that in an immersive space and then students can begin to understand how the language is actually spoken in real time, in real space. Uh, other people were suggesting, well, natural sciences should certainly be interested in this. We could go out into uh, different ecosystems and different environments, record video, record space, you know, and, and then we can bring that back here. And people who are interested in, in, in uh, you know, ecology, things or people who are interested in environmental studies can actually use the DSL uh, as a way to bring students into the into those spaces as well. And so there was, there was uh, immediately this sort of excitement about, wow, think about all the things you could possibly do with this space uh, now that it's been built. So uh, we're really, really excited about sort of, you know, collecting that information. And the idea is then to, to make those images and those videos freely accessible to anyone who has these spaces. Mm-hmm. So different universities, you know, and because, you know, if you just provide them with the raw images and the raw video, they can project it. They mm-hmm. can put it in their own space wherever they want. So, um, yeah, yeah, I'm really, really yeah, excited that's about that. I mean, if we can, if we can leverage the the fact that our students cover the globe yeah. every yeah. summer and yeah. during the year as well, that so. we, you know, and faculty can begin to identify places and uh, learning opportunities across the globe. That that's really transparent. It's such a good fit, yeah. right? Yeah. Because MSU has this kind of global mission. We have an incredibly active and incredibly wide-ranging study abroad program. And so it's just a matter of putting technology in the students' hands and then asking them to bring their experiences of the world back to us. Yeah, I mean, and in, in that process, they learn research skills, they learn all kinds of yeah. technical skills as well right. as the cultural experiences that they have in these places. So it's really powerful. Yeah. yeah. So um, 
after read after listening to this podcast, someone wants to go and use the digital scholarship digital scholarship lab. Um, how can they go book equipment or book a space for it in it? Um, it it's really easy. They can go to the second floor of the West Wing of the library and just walk in. We have a service desk there, and they can talk to somebody at the service desk. If they want to use the lab, it is open. Um, if there's not a class being taught in there, they can just walk in and use it. Um, day one, we had students that walked in, sat down, and started <laughs> firing up those computers. They are some of the most heavy-duty computers for processing on campus, and we do have a lot of unique software. One of the things that I didn't talk about was that we saw a real need for students to have access to software that's sort of squirreled away on in individual labs that close at five mm-hmm. or have some other uh, and they would show up at the library at night and they would say I need to finish this with this software and it wasn't available in the library and uh, so now we have a dedicated space so that we can just keep putting that software on those computers and uh, so yeah so for the workshop space they they can do that for the other spaces uh, they talk they can talk to our VR folks and they the 360 room talk you know they can reserve it for a couple of hours and work on it we give them a little bit of instruction or a lot of instruction depending <laughs> on what they're going to do and uh, so our folks in the library the librarians and library staff um, they are they are quick experts on yeah. the 360 and 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 pushing it even more we did actually just hear from igloo they have an update for us for because we talked to them about Google Street View so much um, they are pushing an update to make that work a little bit easier and we have a request in the works for a higher powered machine so mm-hmm. that Look we can that. get live <laughs> Google Ooh. so so we talked to them about that sort of incessantly when they were installing it so I think they got the hint that that was like our number one thing that we wanted to use it for so so yeah so students they can walk in uh, we're open on the weekends and uh, like I said after spring break we'll be open till 11 o'clock, 11 o'clock at night and they can just walk in awesome um Lastly, any any events our listeners should know about that are coming up? Oh, we have a lot of events. I oh. had to bring a whole <laughs> sheet of them. <laughs> Let's see. Uh We've got everything from preparing your data to put in a repository, 3D terrain modeling for 3D printing. Uh, we have an art and feminism Wikipedia edit-a-thon that's going to happen in there. That's going to be on March 14th. Uh, if you're interested in census data, uh, we have some really brilliant census people in the building, and they can uh, uh, help you work through that. Um, one that we have on the 28th, prepare now to survive your personal digital dark age. Whoa. So when the flood <laughs> takes over, all, our data will be fine. And then, um, you know, things like uh, um, uh, Qualtrics, which is a really popular um, software on campus. We've got both an intro and an advanced Qualtrics thing that we're running pretty regularly over there. So, nice. so both for students and for faculty, and they're open and free for everybody. So Go check it out, everyone. It's so great. The opportunities are endless, as you have heard. Um, Well, thank you so much for being here. This was so great. Learned so much about the DSL Lab even after visiting it. So thank you so much for joining us. Um, A big thank you to everyone involved with this podcast, including our technical director, Daniel Trago, our marketing director and producer, Ryan Kilcoyne. And of course, you can access all of Mission State University's College of Arts and Letters, Liberal Arts Endeavor podcast season one and our current season two at go.caldamsu.edu slash podcasts. And finally, the ideas and opinions expressed on this program do not reflect those of the College of Arts and Letters, any of our sponsors, or any official entities of Michigan State University. Be sure to follow us on social media at cal.msu to keep up with all of the new podcasts. Thanks for listening, and go green! Go white! Go white. <laughs>